Well, it's a privilege. Uh, my name is Pastor Brandon, and I'm going to be bringing the word tonight. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. And we're just going to be reading verses 1 through 5. And so um, why don't we do this? I'm going, to, I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, okay? Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Let me pray. Father, we just come before you, God, as we read this passage and are reminded of uh, the importance of humility, God, to walk before you uh, as that of a little child. And Lord, it might seem suffice to say that, that it's harder for some of us than others, but the truth is, Lord, it's, it's not only hard, it's impossible for all of us. God, each one of us has our area of weakness, or rather our area of pride, which, which is weakness in and of itself. And it's in those areas of our life, God, that we need to learn to trust you, to learn of you, to submit ourselves to you, to cast our cares upon you. And so, Father, my prayer tonight is that you would help me, God, help us through the word to have our eyes casted up to heaven, our heads lifted up, to be reminded, Lord, that you truly are where our help comes from in whatever capacity in this season of our life that that may look like. But, God, may we be stirred to prayer as we seek your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The message of my title, the title of my message is, um, They Are Weak But He Is Strong. Anybody know where that's from? Anybody? Yeah? You want me to sing it? Should we sing it? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, yeah, good, good job. Good job. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful, I don't know if you want to call it a hymn or a nursery, because in it are precious, precious truths that we as adults and maybe even young people tend to stray away from that uh, little ones are precious to the Lord because they're weak. But the truth is that even as we grow, we're weak still. Like never do we come to a point where we're strong, but we only fool ourselves into thinking that now we know how to hold down a job and now we know how to fill out an application and we're still learning how to fill out our taxes. And as we get older, we feel like we've got a handle on it. And um, if you've been a Christian for some time, then you know that God has a way of reminding you and I that we know nothing. And reminding us, back to the little hymn or nursery, that it's the children that are blessed. 
And so that's where we find ourselves in this passage. And so rightly so, I'm going to be speaking on uh, humility. And, and so we're just going to go by this verse by verse. So look with me again at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So the disciples had their eye on being great in the kingdom. And we know that because they actually had gotten into somewhat of a, a debate earlier before. And they wanted to, um, in fact, one of the disciples' mothers had come to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, how, how can my son sit at the right and the other sit at the left? And Jesus says, Hey, listen, that's not for me to decide. But then he begins to tell them that if they want to be great in heaven, that this is how they accomplish it. And I think a lot of times when we read a passage like this, and, and I'll admit to you, even as I looked at a, a few commentaries of, of commentators that, that I trust, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with many people on this point. And, and that point is this, is that it seems the general consensus seems to be, and, and you're free to have your own opinion in this regards, uh, but I'm just going to tell, tell it to you as I see it in the scriptures. The general consensus seems to be uh, that, that people are wrong for wanting eternal rewards. Uh, that, that in very essence, their, their question uh, comes with a lot of selfish motives. And in some sense, there's no doubt that it does. But I think the question still remains that as Christians, should we be motivated by eternal reward? I would submit to you that it's quite possible that their question was not stirred from the desire of the flesh. Now, it could have been, but it's also possible that their question was actually stirred by some of Jesus' teachings. I want to remind you uh, that there were numerous times within the scriptures where Jesus uh, taught us, uh, taught his disciples to be motivated by reward. Think about Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, where the one that was faithful with the five talents, well, he was given five talents more. And what is said of him? Well, it's our kind of the, the Christian mantra. We say it all the time, don't we? It's funny how in one breath we'll say, I want to hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. But in the next breath we'll say, well, I have no desire for eternal reward when that very saying is implied to those who receive reward. In fact, he goes on to say, you've been faithful with a little, I'm going to make you ruler over much. Or you, are, you will be blessed and ruler over all he has. Uh, another place in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus shares the parable of the wedding banquet when the gentleman goes to take the seat of honor without being asked. And, and Jesus says, you know, don't, don't do that. As he's, and, and he's actually telling the parable because he's watching people uh, scramble for their seats of honor. And so he says, hey, you know, if, uh, don't do that because if, if the, the person of honor sees you take the seat of honor, he might have to humble you in front of everybody and say, hey, I'm sorry, but that seat's not for you. That seat is for somebody else. And then you have to humbly go take the lowest seat while somebody else takes the spot that you chose. Rather, he says, take the lowest seat so that you can be honored in front of all when the master invites you to sit at the place of honor. And so there seems to be kind of this incentive that we should seek in God to be honored by God. Now, when you say it like that, it actually doesn't sound that bad, does it? That 
um, that it's right for me to seek from God, to be honored by God. In fact, uh, before I give you the negative, let me just give you uh, one of the positive, and of course, there's many more than this. But, um, well, I think I actually kind of threw in three. The other one was in Luke chapter 12, verse 43. How about one more just for fun? Jesus says, pray in secret so that you can be rewarded openly. The negative would be to say it like this, and I don't have to make up a parable of the negative. Jesus actually gives us a parable of the negative. Uh, there's the, the king who has a feast for his son, another wedding banquet, to celebrate his son's marriage. And so they go out and they invite the people of honor. They're invited. They have a special place. And as they go out, these people have no desire to be honored by the king, nor do they have a desire to honor the king's son. It says they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. They would rather be, uh, rather than be honored by the king, they would prefer daily wages. They see more value in a day's wages than value in being honored by the king. So to say that I have no desire for, honor, uh, for, for eternal reward is to say that uh, it doesn't do anything for me to be honored by God. Well, who are you? And why would you not want to be honored by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? C.S. Lewis, this is uh, kind of a lengthy quote, so I hope you don't mind, but C.S. Lewis uh, wrestled with this exact thought, and he says, in the weight of glory, on the issue of eternal rewards, he says, when I began to look into this matter, I was stocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas, taking uh, heavenly glory, quite frankly, in the sense of fame or good report. But not fame conferred by our fellow creatures, fame with God, approval, or I might say appreciation by God. And then when I thought, thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable of the divine accolade, well done, thy good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but in a good child, as, it, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we're patted on the back, but proud misunderstanding is behind the, that dislike. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. C.S. Lewis seems to rightly follow Jesus' train of thought, particularly in this verse, uh, for the issue at its core is not one of simply rewards, but Jesus says the stakes are so much higher. That what's truly at stake is eternal praise or rejection by God. And let's be honest, little children love to be praised by their father. So this is where Jesus kind of leads them. Hey, I know that you're thinking about 
eternal uh, uh, rewards and who can be the greatest in heaven. But then he says this in verse 2. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I would submit to you that the biblical definition of humility is a desire to see God Let me say this again. The biblical definition of humility is to desire God and see your desperate need to be noticed and benefited by him. Let me say that again. I think the biblical definition of humility is to desire God and see your desperate need to be noticed and benefited by him. I can see wheels turning even as I, as I, as I look at it. Just, just rock with me. I, see, I, wa- I want you to see one place where I pulled not just this particular place, but I think where it is uh, very, very clear in the scriptures. And that's in John chapter 12, verse 42. Listen to what Jesus says. It says, nevertheless, excuse me, Jesus doesn't say this. John says this. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. In other words, there were some who were afraid of what other people thought. The Pharisees, who were the teachers of the law in Israel, they kind of had rank amongst the people. And, and you didn't want to be looked down upon by a Pharisee because they had say of whether you could enter the synagogue or not. And so it says that some believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. They didn't confess him as Lord. They didn't acknowledge that they believed that he was indeed the Son of God. But now it tells us why. It says, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So the scriptures are actually telling us that there is something admirable or even humble about desiring to be praised by God. In fact, pride works the exact opposite. Pride says, I have no need to be praised by God. I want my reward here and now. And we seek it in the praise of men. As you begin to uh, continue to read the scriptures, you'll see that the scripture says that they could not believe in Christ because they love the praise of men more than God. If you're, if you're going to please God, well, you, you and I know that you have to have faith. The scripture says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But I would argue that the essence of, of faith in this sense is recognizing our position before him. That we're in a place that we need to be benefited by him, and we want to be honored by him, and there's no greater reward than we have than to be praised by our maker. And I believe that this is why Jesus takes the child, sits him in front of everybody and says, hey, listen, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to become like this child. 
I, I, I don't think, you know, we can go down this rabbit hole where we uh, start to, you know, what, what does he mean by that? What does he mean like we need to become like children? What is it about children? And we start uh, to pull apart their characteristics. And we can also, we can almost make them these, these godly creatures. And, and if you have children, you know that they're not, right? <laughs> None of us are. And, and I don't think Jesus is pulling out any characteristic about children saying that we need to be like them, at least not in their uh, character, not in essence of their character, but in essence of their vulnerability. But notice Jesus says that we need to be converted and be like a child. In the Greek, it, it, it's a word that means to be turned into. And that's why it's translated here as the word converted. In other words, something needs to happen to you and me to become like children. It's not something that we can just aspire to and become like. We need to be turned into. In fact, this is very uh, similar to when Jesus said you need to be born again. Now, he's using the same kind of terminology here. Remember when in John chapter 3 when he tells Nicodemus that you, no man can enter into the kingdom unless he be what? Unless he be born again. He cannot see the kingdom. And Nicodemus is trying to figure that out. What, 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 do, you, what do you mean born again? Does that mean I'm supposed to like, enter into my mother's womb a second time, which is a really weird question to ask, Right? But, but, but he's getting the concept. He's, he, he, to some degree, he's understanding that, uh, that something has to happen, and he can't remain as he now is. And Jesus tells him, you must be born of water and spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to uh, be able to kind of start life all over again, but this time... Jesus gives us uh, some more clarity here by saying you need to be like a child. Now, we could be like Nicodemus and kind of ask the same question. Well, how do I go back and start as a child? And then I would jump back to John chapter 3. He says you need to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's not something that we turn ourselves into. It's something that God turns us into. The Scripture says that... Um, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. That he who is in Christ is a new creature. What kind of a new creature? He's like a child. So I'm prone to ask, well, what is it about children that the Spirit converts us to? Which, by the way, before I go any deeper, and, and I know that if you're a Christian for some time, you know, you've heard this teaching, so I'm not going to belabor this, but I just, I, I want to make it clear that to be a Christian doesn't mean that you read your Bible, it doesn't even mean that you pray or come to church, it means that you've been converted, it means that you've been born again, it means that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. What is the evidence that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we're going to kind of get into that now. It means your entire nature has been changed. I think it's appropriate to ask the question, not are you a Catholic, not are you a Christian, but let's just cut right to the chase and ask the hard question. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the question. 
People ask often, well, what happens if someone dies in this state? Or what happens if they die in that state? Or what happens if somebody commits this sin? Or what happens if, what happens, but very rarely do we ask the question, well, let me, let me put it like this, is, uh, you know, our pastor is, do you think so-and-so is in heaven? You know, they, they, they confess Jesus. Well, we got to be careful with that, right? Because the Bible says that, that even Satan professes Jesus. In fact, we see that actually happen in the scriptures. A demon-possessed man, speaking by the spirit of Satan, confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So then what does it mean to be born again? And how do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? And, and do we give ourselves the liberty to ask the hard question? And so when somebody comes to me and says, well, well, Pastor, do you think that this person is in heaven? They confess Christ. I turn the question back on them and I ask them, do you think that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Because that's the decisive factor between heaven and hell. And the way to be filled with the Holy Spirit is by faith. Well, how do you know if somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit? And Jesus tells us, because they become like children. I know that that might sound really weird. Like if we don't, if, if we don't break that apart, we could walk out with some really strange ideas. So let's just be clear. What is it about children? And I would, I would submit to you that children see their need, their vulnerability. Well, whether they see it or not, they're vulnerable. And so just to make it easy for us, I, I just broke it down into three parts. Uh, they need our protection, they need our provision, and they need our reassurance. And if you're a child of God and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you know that you need God's protection, you need his provision, you need his reassurance, and you need it every waking moment. Right? That's why we, we love the verse, another mantra of ours, you know, there's a, a few verses that we as Christians tend to, tend to pick out, and, and I think rightly so, because these verses constantly remind us that we're in need of him. One of them is, is uh, his mercies are new every morning. If you know that verse and, and you've got it on the tip of your tongue, you probably say it quite often. Why? Because you're reminded, I, I need his mercies every morning. Yesterday, I feel like I failed his mercies, but his mercies never fail me. And guess what? They're new every morning. He has a new measure of mercy already measured out for me tomorrow morning. I'm going to wake up and walk in those mercies. Why? Because I need him. And if I don't have God's mercies, I've got nothing. I've got two teenagers. I am reminded on a daily basis as of late, that I need his mercies. <laughs> and, I, and I submit to you that there has been a while where things have been going really smooth, and I started just feeling like, you know, the good Christian father. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm killing the game right now. I'm killing it. My kids love the Lord, and everything's going smooth. I'm reminded that now, now uh, it's verses like that that, all right, they're fresh. They're fresh tomorrow. I don't know what today was about, but tomorrow they're fresh. 
and close my eyes and wake up in the morning. God, I need you. Children see their need or whether they see it or not, they need protection, provision, reassurance. David prays like this. So let's just go over these three uh, real quickly. Provision. Christian, do you know that you need God's provision? And, and all of us could say amen, right? I mean, let's be honest about this. Even the world, right? They're like, I thank God every day for my meal, right? But they don't really live like they need his provision. And that's why they go out there and they hustle. But they don't pray before they hustle. And a lot of the hustle they do is illegal. Because at the end of the day, they're not trusting in God's provision. They're trusting in and of their own strength. And we may not be doing anything illegal, but we can be doing the same thing, working in our own strength. That's why we become so frustrated at work and so frustrated with our employees or so frustrated with our boss because we're doing it in and of our own strength and we forget that we, we need him. He's the one that provides. David prays like this in Psalm 147. He says in verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in, who, in those who hope in him for mercy. Another translation says, but the Lord is pleased with those who fear him, those who depend on his gracious love. So David is praising God and he's acknowledging that, that all of the earth, even the, even the crows that cry out or the ravens, uh, that in their crying, they're, they're actually crying out to God. They're asking God for food and God provides for them. And you know, we just have to like, let's be real. Do we cry like the ravens cry? God, please, please. Jesus taught us to pray in this way, did he not? God, provide for us. Provide for our bread. Provide for the forgiveness of our sins. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus taught us to pray. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, when, when there's money in the bank for the next month, it's easy to find yourself, not, and I'm not saying that's where I'm at. I'm telling you right now, that's not where I'm at. But it's easy to find yourself not praying for today's bread when you know where to, to, tomorrow's bread is coming from, right? But when there's nothing, we find ourselves praying fervently. But the truth is, even when there's abundance, we should find ourselves praying fervently. Amen? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Some would say, well, if we've already been forgiven, why do we need to keep asking God for forgiveness? Because you keep sinning. That's why. <laughs> Does it really need just like a solid exposition on that? And he said that he's provided for our sins. Well, why do I ask God for something that he said he's going to provide? That's why I ask him because he said he was going to provide. That's why. Does that make sense? In other words, if he didn't say he was going to provide it, then I have no authority or no right to ask him for it and no reassurance that he's actually going to give it to me. 
So because he said he's going to provide it, that's the means by which I pray. Lord, I'm asking for it because you said that you would provide. Jesus did die for my sins. And he was hung upon that cross that I might have eternal life. And and you did say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the basis by which I ask you for forgiveness. And I can rest my heart assured that when I do pray and ask for forgiveness that he's forgiven me. Furthermore, it's on that basis that I can trust that he's going to provide for my every need. For his word says that he supplies for all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so now I ask, God, would you provide? Why? Because you promised that you would. And it's on the basis of your promise that I have the boldness to ask. There was no promise. I have no reason to believe that you would. But because you promised, now I come boldly to the throne of grace. Children need protection, don't they? David, like a child, prayed not only for provision, but he prayed for protection. In Psalm 7, verse 1, it says, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. And so you can see David, this this mighty warrior, which is often what we paint him out to be, right? I mean, he did do some mighty exploits, even as a young kid, right? He's able to to go to Saul and say, hey, I can can take out Goliath. Well, it's not me that's going to take him out, but God is with me. And I know that God is with me because there was a time when I was in the field and a bear came after the sheep, when I was shepherding the sheep, and, and I was able to... I snuffed that bear out. I took my staff and bam, I smacked that bear over the head. And I was like, oh, I did that. No, God did that. God was with me. There was no way I could have done that. David even recounts of another time when a lion came and he says he actually grabbed the beard of the lion and took the lamb out of his mouth. I don't know if you use this kind of language, but... uh, Instead of like, cool, I say, that's nasty. That's, that, and that's one of those where I'm just like, that's nasty. Like, that's on another level. I mean, can you imagine a lion coming after the, the sheep and, and you're like, nah, not on my clock. Come on, Jesus, we got this. And you run over that lion and you grab him by his beard and you're like, give me that sheep. That's my sheep, right? I don't know what he did with the lion after that. I think he killed him. But from that, he he tells Saul, I know that I can take out Goliath because God is with me. He was with me when I killed the bear. He was with me when I killed the lion. So you would think that David kind of walks around with this pompous swagger, and he's like, yo, I'm, I'm, God is with me. Ah, you know what I'm saying? But you know why we love the book of Psalms? Because when we go through the book of Psalms, we, we, we read it and we identify with David's weakness. David cries out in tears. He, in one psalm, he says that his, his, it's like he floated in his bed because his sheets were so filled with tears. And what did he do? He cried out like a little child, God, I need you. God, please, please rescue me. God, please. 
I know you delivered me once before, but I need you now. And there were some times that David even seemed to waver in his faith where he would cry out to God and go, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know you delivered me before, but where are you now? And then he would turn to praise. I know that you're faithful. I know that you deliver those that call upon your name. And like a child, he would put his full trust in God. He says, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they'll tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Doesn't that sound like a desperate child calling out to his father? God isn't looking for warriors. He's looking for children. Whew. I don't know how that just hit you, but that's so opposite to the world, to the message we hear out in the world. I know, because I talk, to, I talk to, to the dudes that are in the streets, and, and they kind of walk around with this mentality that they got to be tough, and, and, God want, and, and when they come to Jesus, they're like, and God is looking for soldiers, and that's why he chose me. And you're like, dude, you, you don't get it. You don't get it. He's looking for children. He's looking for sons. He's looking for daughters. He wants to be their mighty warrior. He wants to be their strength in their time of weakness. He wants to be their help in their time of need. And he's looking for people who will humble themselves like a child and lean on him. Where are you at in your walk with Jesus? Are you a mighty warrior? Or are you a little child? Sounds weird to even say coming from my lips, but this is what God is looking for. The third thing that I would say that all children need, they, they, they need provision, they need protection, and they need reassurance. In Psalm 143, again the psalmist says, Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear of your loving kindness in the morning. For in you I do trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk. For I lift up my soul to you. Now, now he knows this. The, the psalmist knows this. He knows of God's loving kindness. But he's asking for God to reassure him, remind me, remind me, remind me that you love me one more time. I've noticed that it uh, doesn't matter how many times I tell my wife I love her. If, if I go a week without telling her I love her, she says, you, 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 don't even, you don't even tell me you love me anymore. Anymore, right? It's like, well, I, like I never, like I haven't done it in a year. But her heart cry is, is I, I want to know that you're still passionate for me. And in the same way, we humble ourselves like children before the Lord, and we say, God, I, I know that you said that you love me. I, I just need to be reminded again. By the way, you, you know that this is why we come to church, right? You know this is why we sit under the preaching of his word. People say, oh, I don't, I don't need to go to church. I got the Holy Spirit inside of me. I am the church. I don't need church. Anybody ever heard that? This, this so, not to be harsh with words, but it's so, it's so dumb. It's just a dumb. It's dumb. Why? Because the heart of coming to church is that you can fellowship amongst uh, God's children, be reminded that you're, you're a child like everybody else. We're, we're all under a heavenly father, and then we come to be reminded that we need him. That's what happens every Sunday. Pastor Derek stands up here and reminds us that we need him. 
And we walk away encouraged like little children. That's right, I do need him. And, and he said, and he promised that all of my needs he's going to provide for. This is what I read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Beautiful scripture, by the way. If, if Maybe I can encourage you just to jot it down, read it when you, when you get home. Listen to what it says. It says, and so we have this prophetic word. He's talking about the scriptures. And so we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the author says uh, this word, this prophetic word, which we have confirmed, we know it to be true. And because we know it to be true, we do well to heed to it. We do well to look into it. Well, 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 Pastor, how long should I look into it? Look into it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, I, I read the Bible and it doesn't make any sense to me. So read it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I want God to encourage me, but I just don't feel like I'm encouraged. Well, then heed it, look into it, put your face in the book until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's what he's saying. He's saying we, we do well to, to peer into the scriptures until the Holy Spirit illuminates God's word to us. And finally, we're, we're reassured once again, okay, I know he's got this. I mean, I knew that he had it, but I forgot. Anybody ever been there where you, you know that God has it, but everything in you? Like, that's why I love where David says, oh, my soul, why are you downcast within me? Because deep down inside, you know that God has it, but everything about you is like, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. And I know that he has it, so why do I keep thinking that he doesn't have it? And so we look to God for reassurance. Just like a wife would look to her husband or like a, a child would look to their father. Dad, hold me. Remind me that you love me again. And here's the last thing I'll say here that Jesus says that this genuine faith produces humility which is expressed by how we treat God's weakest creatures. So if we consider ourselves to be children, if we've been humbled like a little child, in verse 5, he says, now, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Here we're told that those who humble themselves like little children, for the sake of God, we are immediately now given application, and our first instruction is that we are to receive children. That the reason for this instruction is given that, firstly, Jesus has special care to his children, for they have great need of God's care. And one of the means that God takes to care for his little ones is by commanding all who will listen to the gospel throughout the ages to be on guard for how they treat God's children. So how does God take care of the little ones? Well, one way he does so is by putting it in the scriptures and telling us, watch how we treat them so that everyone who hears God's voice listens and obeys. But the issue here is not children, but faith. 
And if anyone has any measure of genuine faith, it should affect even his dealings with children, that they'll handle them with great fear. Jesus gives us a reason to fear in verse 10. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The point here is that as we humble ourselves before God and we know that he's ruler and creator of all, then, then it affects even the way that we treat the weakest of God's creatures. And in this case, explicitly children. That we know that they belong to God. So we watch how we treat them. And in a general sense, that when we humble ourselves before God, that it causes us to change in the way that we treat others. Because we see ourselves as creatures in need, and we look at others in the same light. You wouldn't gather that if you were on Facebook. Just being real. You go on Facebook right now, it's a mess. I'm not even talking about the world. I'm talking about professing Christians. Everyone's got their political view and everyone's bashing the other one because they don't uphold what they consider to be their convictions. Well, wait a minute, where's, where's room for, aren't we children? Don't children grow and mature? So if my brother holds a different conviction than me, isn't it possible that that may be the stage of life in their Christianity that they're in? And if the Holy Spirit is really bearing witness in their hearts and working in them, then is, am I not to assume that what they now believe to be true, if it's wrong, that the Holy Spirit doesn't have the power or the authority or the love for them to correct them at some point? So then why do I condemn them that they don't believe exactly what I believe now? Do you believe everything that you believe now 10 years ago when you were a Christian, if you've been a Christian for that long or longer? No. Why? Because we're children and we grow. And as God has given you and I the grace to grow, we need to give others the grace to grow. I'm not saying it's a free-for-all that as Christians we can just believe whatever we want. No, we uphold each other to the truth, but we do it in, in love. Because the goal isn't to win an argument. The goal is to win our brother and sister in, in Christ. And I'm just being honest, and I know, you know, I know you agree. I can see many of you shaking your head. That's not what you see on social media right now. You see a bunch of angry, bitter Christians. And we just have to ask ourselves, do I know who I am in him? I need him. She needs him. He needs him. My family member that's doing me wrong, they, they need him. And so we have compassion. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we just acknowledge, Lord, before you that... Um,
that we don't always get it right. And even as humble as we might feel like we are sometimes, we could, we could go lower. I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said that the branch with the most fruit hangs the lowest. And God, we want to be those that are, are so loaded down with good fruit that we just hang low. That our desire isn't to show everyone how much fruit we have, but our desire is to feed the hungry, to encourage the weak, to strengthen those who have no might or faith. And so, God, we ask that you help us to become like children. Help us to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge you in all of our ways, and trust that you'll direct our every step. I do want to give a, a, a call to action tonight as we just talk about humility. I, I just think it would be appropriate to give an opportunity for us to humble ourselves before him. And the most humblest thing that we can do, just kind of reflecting back on the very first thing that we talked about, is acknowledging our need to be benefited by him, acknowledging our need to be noticed by him. And that's why we do things like take a step of faith to respond to an altar call. It's not for other people to see, but it is for God to see. And we do want God to take notice. Look, Lord, I'm, I'm taking a step of faith. Would you please notice it? And would you respond and turn to me? And so I want to invite you to, to take that step of faith. If you're, if you're here uh, tonight and, and you say, I, I want God to notice me. I want to be benefited by his goodness. Like a child, I want to be praised by my father. Then I would say to you, please God by your faith. And I would invite you to take a step of faith tonight. Listen, that, that step of faith that I'm going to ask you to take is, is simply right where you're sitting. If you would just stand up in your seat. And you standing is, is saying, God, here I am. Would you take notice of me? I want you to know that God, God sees you standing. Well, on what basis do you say that, Pastor Brandon? Well, I say that on the basis that the Bible says that he sees our faith. And you're taking a step of faith. God sees that. If there's anybody else in this room, I don't want to belabor this tonight, but if, if God is stirring in your heart and, and maybe you're wrestling with that, 
wondering, well, why? What's, what's the point of this? I, I don't get it, but can I just wrestle with you and, and tell you the fact that you're wrestling with it is, is probably evidence that the Holy Spirit is ministering to your heart right now. Sometimes we don't need all of our questions answered. We just need to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is asking. Remember, we're his child and he's our father. So just one more moment. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet? Amen. If you're giving your life to Christ for the first time tonight, I, I want to just invite you to, to pray with me. We're going we're gonna to say this together. We're going to pray out loud, and we're going to say it with faith. You can repeat after me. Say, God, I need you. And you promised that if I would call upon the name of Jesus, that you would save and deliver me, that you would help me in my weakness, that you would make me to be born again. Help me to humble myself before you. I know that I can't do it on my own. I need your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. If you stood for another reason tonight and just to, as an act of humility, uh, God, God sees you. Father, we, we just pray. If you would, just pray with me. Father, we just pray for those that have responded, God. We ask that uh, they would just rest assured, Father, that you do hear them. We pray, Lord, that they would continue to dig deeper into your word, that you would uh, remind them, rest them assured by, by your word. Uh, may the Holy Spirit just call it, cause certain scriptures to be illuminated in their hearts that would just confirm to them that, that you bore witness tonight, Lord. You saw their, their act of faith and humility. and God, that you acknowledge them and that you're pleased by their faith. God, help us all to humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.